Hey guys, you're listening to episode 52 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today, we're talking with John Reinhardt, the author of Gospel Patrons. Hey there, welcome to the show. My name is Cody, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. In this episode, we're talking with John Reinhardt, the author of the well-known book, Gospel Patrons, and founder of the organization, Gospel Patrons, which provides a wealth of resources and stories of gospel patrons online to encourage others toward their own calling. John speaks across the country on topics of generosity and calling, and we're excited to have him with us today. Before we get started, I just wanted to ask one big favor of you guys. If you've been listening to the show for some time and want to support what we're doing, one very easy and free way to do that is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Just write whatever you like about the show and you'll help others find us. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know when new episodes come out. And with that, let's get started. All right, here we are with John Reinhardt from Gospel Patrons. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, I'm excited, guys. So why don't you kick us off just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, well, Jesus saved me as a seven-year-old kid at a Christian camp in Minnesota. Praise God that some college student gave up his summer to work with little kids like me and took that responsibility very seriously and asked me a very simple question. If you were to die tonight, are you sure that you would go to heaven? And even as a little kid who had grown up going to church, I wasn't sure. Because if we're basing it on our own performance and our own behavior, we all kind of get, we fall short. And explain the gospel to me in simple language that a little kid could understand. I'm a sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior, and I need Him. And from seven years old, I was in. I believed it. I believed in Jesus. He was real to me. And my faith has been real to me since that point. So I went on a journey. My family moved around a couple times. I studied business in college and got a job selling copy machines right after college. That's what every sales guy dreams of selling someday. (laughs) (laughs) But it was incredible training, and God blessed us with paying off student debt. It led, once our debt was paid off, which was a really, really big deal for us when we were first married, my wife and I, it really changed the conversation that I began asking questions that I didn't have answers to. Questions like, why do I work? What is money for? What's the role of business people and professional people in the kingdom of God? Are we second-class Christians? How do we contribute? I didn't know. Even though I'd grown up going to church, even though I went to an amazing Christian university called Biola in Southern California, those questions just didn't get raised and they didn't get answered. And so it really sent me on a journey saying, man, I don't want to miss what God has for my life. And good in business. I succeeded wildly there and God really had his hand upon me and gave me great favor, but just had a sense that there was something more. And through a season of prayer and seeking counsel, I went back to seminary for four years, studied the Bible, theology, New Testament, Old Testament, preaching, pastoral ministry, just going, whatever comes next, God, I want to be more grounded in your word. Well, when I asked my wife, what do you want to do next? I said, what's your dream? Wrapping up seminary, I'd studied for four years She had supported our family through that time, working in business. Her dream was to go all the way around the world and to become a global Christian and learn to walk by faith. I said, that's incredible. We're 29 years old. We don't have children yet. We don't own a house yet. Let's do it. So we packed up all our belongings and storage, and we went on a four and a half month trip around the world, 132 days around the world. And with those two aims in mind, to become global Christians and to learn to walk by faith which meant that we didn't book a single hotel room in advance of arriving in a city. didn't mean we'd ever paid for a hotel, but we just said, we're just going to pray every day. Lord, show us where you want us to stay. Lead us to whatever place you want us to be at. Sometimes he provided in supernatural, miraculous ways, and other times we stayed at an average hotel. But we were learning to walk by faith from country to country. 
we're also becoming global Christians. So we were trying to worship with Christians in their local churches and local languages, local contexts, wherever we were trying to meet Christians who worked in business in the marketplace and understand what they're doing. And in general, just keeping our eyes and ears open saying, okay, God, every day, show us what you want us to see, take us where you want us to go, help us see what you want us to see, do what you want us to do, feel what you want us to feel. We're open. And you guys know this from traveling. There's something about traveling that just sort of opens you up in general. You're out of your normal routine. You're just ready to receive in a different way. And God knew that's what I needed because four months into that four and a half month trip, I was introduced to a business leader who told me about the idea of gospel patrons. At that point, I had no idea what those two words meant together. I knew what the gospel was. I'd heard of patrons who sponsored scientific research or great artistic works in the Renaissance. But putting those two terms, gospel and patrons together, was a powerful new idea for me that brought together this passion for business and the role of professional people within the kingdom of God, but also yeah, just how does God use people like that to advance his kingdom and his glory? And so gospel patrons for me lit a fire that has not gone out for over a decade now and became sort of a passion for me to give my life to proclaiming this message that each of us have a part to play, that behind every great movement of God, there's always going to be someone there, often a kind of quiet VIP backstage, generous professional person who says, I'm in. I'm in. The work of the kingdom of God is not just for pastors and missionaries. It is for those, yes, but each of us have been uniquely designed by God, given the gifts, opportunities, skills, talents, careers, finances, all of that, so that we too can lay it at the feet of King Jesus and say, here it is, use me as you will to build your kingdom and glory. So gospel patrons really was the marrying of beginning of a career in business, but then a passion for God and his kingdom and his word that grew. And it brought those things together in a more beautiful way than I ever anticipated. Yeah. Thank you for that context, John. I love the concept of setting lofty goals, like becoming global Christians and learning to walk by faith and then going and doing it in a pretty extraordinary way. And I'd love to dive right into gospel patrons and what you do there. But you said something that really stuck out to me. As you are graduating with a business degree, you are wrestling with these big, important questions of what does it mean to work? And am I not approaching Christianity in the right way by going into the business world? And I'm wondering where you started to search for answers to those questions, or if this journey with your wife was really what revealed the beginnings of an answer to some of those questions. I mean, I sought counsel from mentors, some who were pastors, some who were business people. I think a lot of people who are working in vocational ministry have a hard time answering that question. How do professional people fit within the kingdom of God? And so I didn't find satisfactory answers. I'd gone to a Christian university with a great business program and really godly business professors. And yet there was something about business as a Christian that felt like a list of to-dos. It felt like a list of principles to keep. So just, yeah, do business as a sales rep or a financial planner or a doctor or whatever. Do the same job that everybody else does, but be honest. Don't sleep with the secretary. Don't steal money. Treat people fairly. And honestly, that felt so uninspiring. Not that, not that those aren't the right things to do in response to a holy and righteous God. Yes, we want to live holy lives. Yes, we want to love people around us and, and keep the Ten Commandments and you know all of that. But felt like oh, there's got to be a more robust vision that brings these things together. And what was interesting is to go all the way through seminary and to get a Master's of Divinity degree at a very great seminary called Talbot School of Theology, also in California, and feel like we didn't wrestle with that. We didn't wrestle with that. Out of four years, we spent a third of one day's lecture on the moral goodness of business. And I felt like a thirsty dog salivating. Like, yeah, let's go. Come on. And we moved on and talked about something else. It was interesting in seminary that we rarely, if ever, I can't remember us talking about a biblical view of money or stewardship or giving or generosity and it perplexes me now on this side of the equation because I think, man, Jesus talked about money, stewardship, and possessions 25% of the time. More than any other single topic, he was after the relationship that our hearts have with created things and with stuff and with money. 
And yet I wasn't trained, even in great context, I wasn't trained to think about those things. And so it felt like I was searching for answers, but I wasn't, I wasn't finding kind of the robust vision. Maybe that was it. I was looking for vision, not simply answers, vision, not simply principles. And stories have the ability to give us vision and principles at the same time. And that's what really triggered just this passion for gospel patrons when we were sitting in Sydney, Australia, meeting with this friend of a friend who was a business leader. And I asked him, I'm supposed to ask you about gospel patrons, but I don't know what that was. What he shared were stories, stories of how God has used business people behind the scenes throughout history. And for some reason, it was like the lights went on. I thought, how come I've never heard these kinds of stories before? How come I've never read the biography of a Christian business person and their role in right at the strategic center of what God was doing in their generation? Why, why have I not been told this? It sort of lit a flame like these stories have to be told. And I ended up writing a book called Gospel Patrons because I just knew if I didn't write this book, no one else would. And these stories had to get into the world. So tell us a little bit more about the formation of the book, how you collected the stories that you did include, and what your goal was in trying to flesh out those stories and the message that you were trying to communicate. Yeah, it was an interesting process becoming a writer and a historian at the same time. Our friend in Australia who told me about Gospel Patrons had told me really like 30-second versions of these stories that ended up in my book. So I didn't discover the stories you know, right off the bat for myself. I was given seeds, essentially, to plant and water and grow. And the stories were all British. One was from the 1500s in England. The other two were from the 18th century. So amazing British history about different movements of God. So the book tells the stories of the gospel patron. He was a cloth merchant behind William Tyndale and the first translation of the English Bible. Second story is Lady Huntington, this wealthy aristocratic heiress who becomes a widow and ends up being the main patron behind this evangelical awakening or the first great awakening and a preacher named George Whitfield. When Whitfield needed support and she was asking the question, Lord, how do you want to use me? I have vast wealth and estates. My husband's passed away, but I want to find my part to play in your work. God gave her this idea to get behind Whitfield and sponsor him and also open up her network and her connections with nobility and even royalty for the preaching of the gospel. The third story is about a businessman that the world has almost never heard of named John Thornton. John Thornton was the wealthiest merchant in England in his generation. If you think Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, that's John Thornton in his day in England. He becomes a Christian in his 30s through hearing George Whitfield preach the gospel. And he comes alongside a country church pastor named John Newton. John Newton probably would have been lost to the world, but would have known of him had he not written some of his own biography. And if he hadn't written the most famous hymn in the history of the world, Amazing Grace. John Thornton became John Newton's best friend. And they exchanged letters. And I had the privilege in doing research about their story to dig into old biographies, follow and track footnotes, and end up at the Cambridge University Library in Cambridge, England. And there was a collection of letters between these two men that had been in an attic, someone's attic in the family for about 200 years. And then they got donated to Cambridge University's library. And I spent time there with my wife photographing every letter and then I spent an entire summer transcribing the letters because they were the old, you know, old English script. And so the F's look like S's or whatever it is and all of that. And so I went through 186 letters between these two men back and forth, trying to understand the nature of their friendship, trying to understand, you know, how God used them powerfully in their generation. And I came across a letter where John Thornton wrote to John Newton and Newton had been sending him some of his hymns. And Thornton said, these are good. If you would essentially take up the workload of publishing these, putting these, collecting them into a hymn book, I would be at the expense of purchasing the first thousand copies and distributing them among my wealthy and influential friends in London. And in 1787, they launched the hymn book called The Olney Hymns. Olney was a small town that John Newton was a pastor in 
the only hymn book in 1787, and hymn number 41 was called Faith's Review and Expectation. <laughs> Long name for a hymn. The Americans renamed it the first two words of the hymn, Amazing Grace. They probably wouldn't know or have ever sung that song. It would have never left this tiny little country church. Had a business leader not said, these are good. I'll pay for the first thousand copies. Let's publish this. Those kind of things just kept blowing my mind as I did this research, because we tend to think of the missionaries, the pioneering leaders, spiritual leaders, the preachers, the hymn writers, the worship leaders as lone rangers who are just so phenomenally gifted. And they were the rising star kind of able to attract everyone's attention and do it all on their own. And the more I dig into history and even scripture, I just see that's not how God works. God does gift some people phenomenally, but he always gifts a body of people to champion this message called the gospel. And he gifts us with different gifts. Even if you go to 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12, if you read the different gifts, some gifts are mercy, some are service, some are administration, some are leadership. Giving is a gift, a spiritual gift that God gives as much as teaching or as much as exhortation is a spiritual gift that God gives. And what we find throughout history is that when God unites his people, that someone has the gift of preaching or teaching or translating scripture, and someone has the gift of generosity, which probably means they also have the gift of leadership or administration or whatever gift they're using in their profession to make that money. When, the, when those gifts come together, God does explosive things. And that's exciting. It's been exciting to see that no matter what gift you have, you can bring it to the table and God wants to use it. Yeah, John, I had a chance to read Gospel Patrons and I was so encouraged by the stories that I found in there that you just quickly described. I'm curious to hear from your perspective, why is it significant that these were collaborative efforts and they yielded incredible results, but no one person did any of these tasks or ministries on their own. So why do you think it's significant that they were collaborative efforts and how do we see this modeled in scripture? I think it's significant that the historical patronage partnerships were collaborative because what it did was it unlocked the way God works. That's what it does. It unlocks the way he works. I didn't just hear a great story. I understood a deep truth, like a deep mystery of how God works. I think up until that point, I and many others just assume, you know, that that guy is so gifted to preach or, or that girl is so gifted to lead worship or work with kids or do whatever ministry, missionary, can, they, that person can learn languages so they can cross a culture and be a missionary. But man, man, I don't know if those are my gifts. I don't know if I have what it takes. And, you know, 95% of people, I'm making that up, but I assume it's 95% of people will never be a pastor. They'll never be a missionary. They'll never work for a church. And so you go, wait, does God save people but only use 5% of his available army? I don't think so. And these stories, what they did was they unlocked the way that he works. Like you're saying from scripture, scripture was really the key for me. It's great to hear historical stories and history is powerful because it shows us God worked one way, but he can work that way again. He worked powerfully in the past. He can do it again. But when you see it in scripture, you go, man, this is revelation from God for how he works. I came across it. I was reading the gospel of Luke and, you know, there's four gospels, four mini biographies about the life of Jesus. And I'm reading through the gospel of Luke just for my private time to know God better and serve him. And I get to Luke chapter eight and I find these three women who seemed like a footnote in every other time I'd read through the Gospel of Luke before. But now with this Gospel patron framework, they popped off the page. And here's what it says about them. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Soon afterward, he, speaking of Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, now check this, and many others who provided for them out of their means. I read that, 
And I see Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And the question pops into my mind that I'd never considered before, which was when Jesus left his role as a carpenter, when he left his profession as a carpenter and traveled for three years, teaching, preaching, casting out demons, healing people from all kinds of diseases, how did he fund himself? Because he still ate, and he had a traveling band of at least 12 guys, and it seemed like a larger entourage with him. And they were walking everywhere, and they were young, and they probably had big appetites. How in the world did these guys provide for themselves? Because Jesus called them to drop their nets. He leaves his role as a carpenter, and these guys are going to eat a lot. (laughs) I'd never considered that question before. And then I began to look through the New Testament and go, oh, he could have done it in a thousand ways. We see him multiply fish and loaves with ease. Kid brings Jesus five loaves and two fish. He feeds 5,000 men, probably fifteen to 20,000 people in a day. He feeds 4,000 people and there's leftovers. And you go, oh, so he could have just kept some leftovers and kept multiplying them like that through miracles day after day after day after day. They would have never run out of food. That's not what he did. God could have chosen for his son to be born into the most wealthy and aristocratic family of the time. Think royalty. And that's not what he did. Jesus could have been a trust fund baby and all of his ministry expenses and anything he would have needed could have been handed to him at birth. And that's not what happened. Jesus could have told his disciples where to go catch fish and they drop down their nets and their nets are so full that they're breaking And then they sell fish and sling it around and start this fish market that's better than Pike's Place Market in Seattle and sell (laughs) fish and make money. He could have told Peter, go get the one fish with the coin in his mouth. Actually, get two of those and we'll do one coin for Caesar, one for ministry every single day. And they would have had enough money to provide for his ministry. He could have turned tap water into the best wine in the Roman Empire and sold it everywhere in the world and made millions and funded his ministry that way. But that's not what he did. What he did is right here in the Bible, Mary Joanna, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Super interesting that Joanna is given, we're given the name of her husband and her husband's position. Herod was a very powerful ruler and leader. To be his household manager was not to be Herod's butler. It was to be Herod's CFO. It was to be Herod's real estate manager. It was to be his chief of staff. When we see in the Old Testament the term household manager, we remember that Joseph was Potiphar's household manager. And the only thing that was outside of Joseph's jurisdiction was Potiphar's wife. And she wanted to be under Joseph's jurisdiction. but That wasn't going to happen. But Joseph was responsible for everything that Potiphar had. So Herod's household manager is an incredibly prominent, financially prosperous position. This is Joanna's husband, Chusa. Chusa, Herod's household manager. Joanna leaves, seemingly leaves, or better word would be, Joanna leverages that position and wealth to come alongside and be one of the three women named who provided for Jesus and the 12 disciples as they traveled from town to town preaching and teaching. If we track her name, we don't find it again until Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection at the end of the Gospel of Luke. But it seems like we can understand from Scripture here that Mary, Joanna, and Susanna tracked with Jesus from this moment in Luke chapter 8, all the way from Galilee, accompanied him to the cross, where they're preparing spices and burial clothes at his death, were coming to the tomb first to visit him. And when the resurrected king steps out of the grave on Easter Sunday morning, who does he appear to first? Not Peter, not James, not John, Mary Magdalene, one of his three gospel patrons. To me, this is mind-blowing. God could work in a thousand ways, but what he chooses to use is people who are willing to volunteer, step forward in faith, 
offer what God's already put in their hands for his glory and his honor, that's how we get written into the story of God. (laughs) It's not that she got written into the story of God because her husband had a really good job or they lived in a house on the hill overlooking the water and had nice parties and fancy friends. They got written into the story of God because they leveraged what God had given them for God's kingdom, not their own kingdom, for God's glory, not their own glory. I saw this with Mary and Joanna and Susanna, and I went, what? God has always, from the beginning of the ministry of Jesus until now, been raising up people like this, who oftentimes seem like footnotes behind the scenes to say, I have a great plan for you. I want to write you into my eternal story. Are you willing to lay down what I've put in your hand? You're willing to open your hands and trust that all the affluence, all the influence, all the wealth is actually a gift from me, not meant for your comfort and security and ease only, but it's meant to pass through you where you can provide for others out of your means with what I've provided for you. You're blessed to be a blessing. When that happens, we get written to the story of God and join the adventure of God like we could never imagine. There's more gospel patrons in the New Testament. I want to write a whole nother book highlighting these kind of gospel patrons from the New Testament. So we see this is biblical. This is how God works. It's the way that he works. When I saw that, it was like God handed me a key and said, this unlocks the door for 95% of Christians who are latent, who have latent potential and power. They don't know what their role is. They don't know how they fit within the kingdom of God. It's so easy for them to be choked out by the love of money, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. But I've made them to be 30, 60, 100-fold fruitful. Give them the key. Take the lock off. Let's run. Let's go. This is how God works. And for me, it was like taking a drug. (laughs) I've never been high in my life, never taken a drug in my life. But I'm like, are you kidding me? This is incredible. Yes, God, let me be a champion of this kind of message for a generation. And that's what we've tried to do. You know, John, I love the name Gospel Patrons because I think it so perfectly captures the essence of everything that you just described. And I was just thinking as you were talking, you know, we talk about giving a lot when I think the average Christian hears about giving, they think of my tithe to the church or what I'm going to write to the church once a week and then done. You can take it up a step to generosity, but even generosity, that word I think can get washed out sometimes or be overused. And I think it's really easy to just think about writing a check. The generosity is about the act of sending funds to somewhere else, to somebody else doing work somewhere. But gospel patron is such a more comprehensive term that I think captures the full essence of everything that you just shared in these couple stories about really giving your whole self as well as financially, but also like these women that you're talking about, they gave everything of themselves into Jesus's ministry and to propelling that forward. And from the stories in your book, you know, these people walked with the recipients of their patronage for the rest of their lives. I think each of them to the end, and they developed really intense relationships. And so My question is, how do people move from giving to generosity to gospel patronage? Where is that transition? What is the change in mindset or framework that people need to make that kind of a jump? It's a great question. I mean, I wouldn't want to discourage people from giving to their local churches. That's very biblical as well. We see that it's important for us to support those who are teaching and preaching the word of God to us. And the Bible actually calls us to honor them and give them double honor or generous provision for laboring at preaching and teaching the word of God. I think that's where you start. I think for most gospel patrons I've met, that's where their generosity began. It began with learning to, and I'm not a percentage guy, but for many people I've found it super helpful to begin by giving 10% of their income to their local church not because it's a rule or a law, God's going to slap us on the hand if we don't, but it's not the finish line of Christian giving. It's the starting line. It's the starting line. I would say learning to give to your local church is the starting place, but it's not the finish line. God wants us to be involved in all kinds of other things. And we see that churches like the church in Philippi supported the apostle Paul. Paul says that no church other than you entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. So it seems like 
churches had the opportunity to not just fund their own congregation or own needs, even in the New Testament, but to come alongside the Apostle Paul and others like him to say, let us help you and ease your burden of travel or provide for you as you do ministry. I think it's a beautiful step to give to your local church, and I would encourage everyone to begin there. And I would say, God's going to introduce you to people that need your support. I got a text yesterday from a friend in Seattle area who knows a guy who's doing incredible ministry among youth, mentoring and sharing the gospel. And this guy's working full-time as a janitor and wants to go full-time and really build out the ministry, but he doesn't have the capacity to do so. And so he was asking me, can you introduce me to a gospel patron? And that's not what I do. I don't you know, I don't marry gospel patrons and ministries, but there's such a need for people to look at themselves and go, wait, I could play a part of that. I could be involved in that guy's life. I could be involved in that guy's life and the fruitfulness that will come alongside him or come through his ministry if I give to him. For me, I know it was a big step to start supporting a missionary for the first time. My wife invited us to support some missionary friends of ours And to me, it felt like such a scary commitment because is this 30 years and do I sign up forever? And when does this end? And what if I don't have enough money and all that? But God very clearly called me to step forward in faith and begin supporting one missionary couple every single month. And he has sustained us. He has been faithful. And we give to many missionaries every month now and do it joyfully on top of giving to our church. And so I think It's beginning to look for those unique invitations that God will bring into your life. Is there a leader, a ministry leader? Is there a missionary? Is there a pastor? Is there a young student who wants to go to Bible school or seminary and they can't afford it? Are there people that God will bring to your church and highlight? Here's a missionary passing through town. I recently read a story of one of the most powerful evangelical women in the 20th century. Her name was Henrietta Mears. And Henrietta Mears had this unbelievable gift for teaching and for organizing the Sunday school movement in the 1940s, 50s. She was powerfully used by God. Billy Graham said that outside of his own mother, she was the most influential woman he had ever known. Well, Henrietta and her sister were teaching Sunday school at a small church in Minnesota. A visiting pastor came to town. He preached. They invited him over to their house for lunch. They spent several hours talking with him over lunch, drove him back for the evening service back when churches used to have a Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and a Wednesday night service. They drove him back to the church, and their friendship was really sparked through that experience that he ended up inviting them to come visit me in California. Once they got to California, he invited Henrietta to begin this amazing ministry at their church, which grew into thousands of people and you know, launched all kinds of curriculum and books that allowed her to be really a national influence on the church. And I look back and I go, man, what if she hadn't invited that visiting pastor over for lunch? And her and her sister hadn't taken that step of hospitality and generosity. Every great step of faith we're ever going to take is preceded by a hundred tiny little steps of faith that lead us to be ready for those big moments. Sometimes we want the silver bullet of just tell me how to do it. What's the easy way? And I would say the easy way would be to take a step of faith today that will lead you to another step of faith tomorrow, which will lead to another step of faith the day after that. You, like Esther, will be ready to step into your moment because you've stepped into a hundred smaller moments before. That's how faith works. Faith is like a muscle. Generosity is a step of faith. And so it needs to be built over time. If you went and you had one great workout this month, you would not be in great shape. If you went and had one great workout this year, you would be in terrible shape. But if you give me 20 to 30 minutes and you work out every day for the next 365 days, you'll be in amazing shape. Well, if we want to have great faith, we got to use it. We got to stretch it. We got to work it out. And I think as we look at how do you become a gospel patron or how do you grow in giving, you grow in giving by giving. You don't grow in giving by listening to a podcast on giving. That's fuel. That's a log on your fire. (laughs) But you got to take a step. You have to take a step. You don't grow in giving just by reading a great book called Gospel Patrons, although I hope you do. (laughs) I hope that inspires you. But I hope it inspires you to your step of faith, your step of action. Because it's in that moment of action that you grow. You don't get in good shape by watching workout videos. You grow in good shape by exercising. And so it is with our faith. If we can take steps of faith in our giving now, 
I think God will open up opportunities for us that we cannot even imagine to live lives of the kind of fruitfulness we could only dream of. But it's going to take faith with the smaller steps. If we're faithful with little, we'll be faithful with much. We can't wait till the windfall or till the liquidity event or towards someday down the road when I'm going to be really, really rich. And then I can afford to give and expect we're going to live lives of 30, 60, or 100-fold fruitfulness. No, you won't. The way you live is by giving now and being faithful today with whatever he's put in your hand and trust him for the increase. Can you tell I like talking about this stuff? (laughs) (laughs) As do we. Absolutely. Well, John, your book, Gospel Patrons, has certainly been that fuel for the generosity fires that are being lit in people every day. But you also have an organization called Gospel Patrons. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what the organization exists to do and how your role looks leading that organization? Yeah, I had no intentions of starting an organization. I thought writing Gospel Patrons was sort of a one-time assignment. And once I finished it, God was going to move me on and have me do other things with my life. But we had a sense, my wife and I had a sense, there's something here that's not completed. And over time, what we realized that God was saying, I'm, I'm not just making you the author of a book, I'm making you the carrier of a message and the carrier of a vision. And there's other ways to carry that vision outside of writing a book. And so we began to explore what those might be because our dream was not just to write a book. It was to see a generation of gospel patrons raised up. I began asking the kinds of questions like, what if God were to raise up another generation of Mary Joannas and Susannas? What if he were to raise up another generation of John Thorntons? The world would be exponentially blessed. The kingdom of God would increase with speed and depth. Man, I want to see that happen. And so the dream from the beginning was a generation of gospel patrons. So we thought, well, what other ways could we tell stories? What other ways could we carry this vision? And a teammate and friend of mine helped to dream with me about an online web platform, gospelpatrons.org, that would house a number of free resources for gospel patrons all over the world. And he pictured it as, you know, an address. And if you want to invite someone to your corporate address or to your home address, you got to give them something and then they'll come over and they can kind of go into the different rooms with you and take a tour and see your space. Well, we wanted a space like that for gospel patrons all over the world who could take a tour and see what we have to offer and actually receive it all as a generous gift. So we created gospelpatrons.org as a platform, not just as a static website, but as a platform that was going to be continually updated with new content. And so we began to put sermons on there. We began to produce short films. We have nine short films that are all about 15 minutes in length, telling the story of modern day gospel patrons and giving us a context for how this can look in people's lives today. Whether you're 25 or 65, we've got different variations and stories and examples whether you're high-tech, low-tech, we've got stories and examples. We also began to interview modern-day gospel patrons in a format that we call gospel patron journals. And we'd ask 10 questions, questions like, what do you wish you knew at 25? And do you believe God is generous? And what's one powerful habit in your life today that really is strengthening for you? Or what are three words you'd want to be remembered by? Or how do you treasure Jesus more than wealth and success? Because that can be a great temptation. And now we've got 25 different interviews on there that are easy to read. They're quick, 10 questions long from people of all different kinds of professions, races, and saying, tell us your story in sound bites that we can digest and just gain some of your wisdom and experience from. I began writing some articles. We've got a number of articles. We've got videos with different leaders. And the, the idea was we want to create the tools that God can use to disciple us, train us, equip us, and equip a generation of gospel patrons. So we're adding new things to it all the time. And I've got a new video launching tomorrow that I'm excited about and new things to come in the fall. And so it's really our home for raising up a generation of gospel patrons. So our mission statement, if I'll get it exact here for you, is to inspire and empower a generation of gospel patrons. That's what we're trying to do. That's what the organization is trying to do. We're a nonprofit. We're a small and scrappy team with a lot of faith, and we're believing God for a generation of gospel patrons who will build the church, bless the world, and finish the Great Commission. Yeah, and we'll put that link in our show notes so that anybody who's listening can find all those resources. I'm wondering if any of those modern-day gospel patron stories 
stick out to you or come to mind you might be able to share with us here? Yeah, one of my favorites is a film on our website called This Book is Alive. And if you use a phone or an iPad, you probably have the YouVersion Bible app on it. The YouVersion Bible app has been downloaded more than half a billion times. <laughs> it's just unbelievable how God has spread this resource. And they've got, I don't know, a couple thousand languages on there and different translations and versions and Bible reading plans and all of that. But going back on the story of that, when Apple announced that they were going to do this thing called an app store and people could create apps, there was a young technologist who had begun working for a church in Oklahoma City named Bobby Gruenwald. He was traveling through a TSA security line at Chicago's O'Hare's airport, and he was asking the question, how can we use technology to help more people connect with the Word of God? And he began to say, you know, what if we had like a Bible website? And then what if maybe it's a Bible app? And they had a guy from their team who was a 19-year-old work all weekend to create an app in time for the App Store's original launch. It was one of the first, I don't know, 200 apps launched in the App Store back in 2007. This little one that looks like a Holy Bible, you know, it's a little brown square. They launched this Bible thinking, you know, maybe we'll do 80,000 downloads of the Bible over the next, you know, six to 12 months. That weekend, they had 83,000 downloads. Wow. Wow. In a single weekend. And he realized, wow, there's something to this. Well, realizing that meant we're going to have to build some structure and strategy around this to really steward this thing well. The guy who just developed it on the side over the weekend is going to have to be full-time. And we're going to need a team to help us get it into other languages. And we're going to need a team of developers to make it user-friendly and to add different versions. And we're going to need people in different Bible agencies to give us permissions to post versions that they've translated for free and just give it away now rather than charge people for the work that their translation teams have done. And he was up to his eyeballs or over his head in trying to do this. And God raised up a gospel patron for him named Mark Green. Mark Green is a friend of mine and the son of David Green. David Green's the founder and CEO of a little company you might've heard of called Hobby Lobby. And Mark Green heard about this, got introduced to Bobby through a friend of a friend. They lived in the same town. They got together. And Mark Green also had a passion for the Bible and specifically for Bible translation. And it became clear that they needed to partner on this, that Mark could open doors for Bobby that Bobby couldn't open for himself. Mark had connections. He had influence. He had affluence. And he and Bobby began to meet with different Bible translation agencies together saying, could you come alongside this vision for not just one translation, for free, but all the translations for free and all the languages that have been translated so far for free so we can give this to the world. Martin's family, the Green family, began funding Version and partnering. They weren't the sole funders, but very, very significant funders from the beginning for Version and have continued to support the work of Version Bible app. And that thing has grown by leaps and bounds. And lots of people would know the Version Bible app very few would know that there was a team of people and a family behind it from the very beginning, making it accessible and excellent for all of us who use it. There was a business family gifted in arts and crafts, <laughs> gifted in being merchants in our generation who've made that possible for us behind every great movement of God. God raises up someone who's going to proclaim the gospel and he raises up someone who's going to be the patron of the gospel Certainly, the Green family is a family of gospel patrons. Yeah, that's an awesome story. I didn't know that their family was behind that. I mean, it's just like so many of the stories that you've shared in your book and with us here today. A lot of these people's names are not on the headlines, but they are very deep in the inner workings of everything that God is doing. And so, yeah, I love every time we get to peel back the layers and see what God was orchestrating from way back. Another thing you mentioned on your website is interviews asking a lot of the same questions to many different gospel patrons. And I'm curious if there's any themes that you guys have seen in the lives of people that are living this kind of a way or inviting God into really every aspect of their life to be used. What themes have you seen and, and how can we try to apply those in our own lives? 
Yeah, I would want to say that when we ask people about do they believe God is generous, the most consistent answer we have is, yes, he's generous. And how do I know that? Because I've seen the cross of Jesus Christ. But the most generous act in all of human history was that God, who had everything in all of his glory in heaven, chose to step down because he was in very nature God. His nature is not to grasp it's to give. And therefore he humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. God, the father, God, so loved the world that he gave. That's what God does. That's who he is. Gospel patrons who live lives of radical, inspiring generosity are people who first and foremost have understood and grasped the gospel. The gospel is God's generosity to us. Many pastors haven't yet seen this. Many of us have not seen this if we've been in the church for decades, that God is generous. The original lie in the very beginning, Satan's first lie to Adam and Eve was, did God really say, can we trust his word? And then maybe he's holding out on you. Maybe you could achieve your true potential if you grasped it because God's not willing to give it. The one tree that he said, don't eat from. Yeah, God's not really generous. He knew that if you ate it, you'd be like him. God's cheap. He's miserly. He's holding out on you. The first lie that entered the world, God's not generous. What does God do to people who didn't believe his generosity? He gives them more. (laughs) He gives them his one and only son. The God of the Bible is the most generous being we could ever conceive of. None of us would give our one and only son or our one and only child to rebels who did not believe our values and, in fact, offended us, sinned against us, and rejected us. None of us would do that. Oh, here, have my son as a blood sacrifice to make peace between us. This is what the God of the Bible does. This is what Jesus did. He was in very nature God and willing to step off of the throne of heaven and step into the humanity that he had created, into the mess, into the chaos, into the rebellion, into the sin, and see rebels become worshipers, orphans become sons and daughters. This is the foundation for grasping generosity. We become like that which we worship. If you worship a stone, you will become stoic. If you worship an idol, you will become spiritually dead. But if you worship a God who is willing to lavishly give, you'll become radically and and cheerfully generous. It's just who he is. So gospel patrons begin by seeing the generosity of God and seeing it most in his son, Jesus, given at the cross. On top of that, I would say every gospel patron, we kind of covered this already, but started small. They didn't start with huge numbers and huge dollars and huge checks and huge percentages, but they started and they started out of this place of, I'm going to keep growing. Um, It's not set it and forget it. It's not just put my giving, you know, here's the percentage I do, or here's the number amount that I do. And then I'll just walk away and live the rest of my life as if that didn't matter. They see their generosity as an extension of their faith, as an act of faith, as a way to worship. I would also say a theme that I continue to see among great gospel patrons is that their genius, their true and pure genius is obedience. (laughs) they're gifted in all different kinds of ways. But when God speaks, they move. When God invites them to something, they say yes. They don't argue. They don't try to justify it. They don't try to get themselves out of it. The great genius of great gospel patrons is very, very simple, but very hard. It's to obey. When you obey, God says, oh, I found someone I can trust. (laughs) Let's go have some fun. Let's go do some work. I'm going to let that guy join the family business. Let's go conquer some mountains together. And so it can seem complicated from the outside or seem like you have to have all these fancy qualifications to be a gospel patron. But I say, if you're willing to open your hand and trust God to put in, take out, use you, if you're willing to say yes to Jesus when he invites you into, you're ready to go. Well, John, it sounds like you've been on quite a journey for some time, whether it's traveling abroad and experiencing firsthand what it's like to be part of the global church or to intentionally practice walking and living in faith or getting down and researching at a deep level these gospel patrons 
it sounds like you've just had an incredible amount of experience in the field of generosity. And I'd love to hear how God is continuing to stretch you in the area of generosity today. Yeah, that's the thing is once you take a step of faith, that's scary. You want to get back into the boat and you're like, whew, that walking on water stuff was great. I want to be done with that for a while. And God goes, nope, that was meant to lead to another step. You're going to be preaching at Pentecost, Peter. You're not just walking on water. You're going to be preaching at Pentecost. And you're going to be telling people that they killed the Lord of glory and they need to repent. And so we're in an interesting season. My wife and I are in a wilderness season right now where we felt like the Lord was giving us the opportunity to travel the country, do ministry together as a family, but live out of an RV. And that's what we've been doing for the last nine months living super simply. We have two kids, we have a cat, and we live out of an RV. (laughs) (laughs) We give generously and cheerfully and happily, but it's been a season of pruning. It's been a season of stripping away. It's been a season of refocusing on prayer and the ministry of the Word of God, and a season of waiting and trusting that God is preparing a place for us, though we can't see it and don't know where it is yet, that He's producing new wine in us and will also produce new wineskins for that new wine. But it's been a journey. It's been a journey of faith. Lots of low moments, lots of broken things in the RV, and lots of joys and lots of relationships we never would have had apart from taking that step of faith. He allows us to give all along the way. And we had a fun experience recently where we were driving with an Uber driver and I had just been at a conference where some friends of mine told me that they tipped their Uber driver 900 bucks. And I went, you guys are crazy, (laughs) but crazy for Jesus. Like they just felt led by God to do that. And so we're driving along with an Uber driver who's from Afghanistan. And he tells us that he works seven days a week and he works 15, 16 hours a day. And I said, why do you work so much? And he said, well, my wife and two children are still in Afghanistan. They're in harm's way. And I used to support the U.S. military and different things and as an interpreter. And so they're in harm's way, but we got separated in our travels over here. And I'm trying to make enough money to get them here. And I said, well, how much do you need? And he said, $4,000. And I said, how much do you have? And he said, (laughs) $3,100. My friend's story of tipping 900 came back to me. And I was sitting in the bag, and so I pulled up a note on my phone and passed my phone to my wife, and the note said, you want to tip this guy 900 bucks?" And she writes <laughs> back on my phone, absolutely. So he unloads our bags, and I got to – I realized you can't tip 900 bucks on the Uber app. <laughs> he maxes you, out at, <laughs> maxes you out at 50. So we got to our destination, and I went inside to my in-law's house, and Asked my father-in-law, hey, can I borrow 900 bucks real quick? He's like, yeah. And he's, he knows me well enough to trust me. He's like, yeah. I'm like, actually, I need it right now. <laughs> I was like, I'll pay you back. I promise. <laughs> and I went downstairs and the Uber driver had been really gracious and brought all of our bags to the front door. And, and I just said his name and I said, hey, thank you so much for giving us a ride. I just want you to know God loves you. He sees you. He sees your wife and kids. He's got a plan for your life. This guy's not a Jesus follower. He's obviously from a different religion, but I said, we want to contribute to your story. And I held out 900 bucks to him. And he looked at the $900 in my hand. And then he looked back at me and he goes, you don't have to do that. And I said, I know, but we want to, we want to. And he took it in his hand, put it in his pocket. And then he said, can I have a hug? (laughs) I said, absolutely. So I embraced him in a hug, gave him my number. We've exchanged texts since then. And he's like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. My wife and children are finally in safety. They were able to cross the border out of Afghanistan. We're working on getting them here into America. And you guys are such a blessing. My mother prays for you. We thank God for you. And was able to share Jesus with him through that and trust that God's working in his life. Never done that before, but is that going to be my last step of generosity? No way. God just keeps inviting us into the adventure, you know? And so you just keep saying yes, and he keeps providing. And I'll tell you that the generous life is the most joyful life there is. (laughs) It's getting to join God and the stories that he's writing. 
every day, every week, every year, and get to grow in that and go on the adventure with Him. And that's the kind of life that I want to live. That's like our God. It's not grasping, but it's giving. Yeah, amen to that. And I mean, every time God gives us a chance to step into a story like that one you just shared, it's an opportunity, you know, to just be a part of what He is writing all around us. And it's so easy to miss. I think often about how many times I miss those exact kind of chances like you just shared. And so I'm so glad that you guys were able to have that amazing experience. And I'm excited to see what else he does in your future. I know you guys have a lot of exciting story to write still. As we get to the end of our episode here, I did want to leave a minute for our manager's minute. And, you know, we all talk all the time about managing God's wealth wisely. And so we like to end every episode with one practical action our listeners can take to do just that. So do you have a quick suggestion for how people can be using any financial margin they have to serve their communities, advance the gospel, or build God's kingdom? Absolutely. Absolutely. Here's your homework assignment if you've listened this far. Are you ready for this, everyone? Find a pastor, missionary, or ministry leader that you know or that's in your community, in your church, in your city, in your area, wherever, someone that you know, and ask them this simple question. What's one thing that I can do for you that would set you up for success? And then close your mouth or stop your email and wait for their response. They might need babysitting so that they can have a healthy marriage and get a date night in and a missionary might not have the budget for it. Pastor might need a new home, but he's scared to even ask because the housing prices are astronomical. And you might work in real estate or you might know someone who's selling a home and you could help with that. You might have a missionary who says, our vehicle and transportation is completely broken down. Or I need 10,000 Bibles so I can distribute them among my among the city that I serve in. Or my kids, we don't have enough money to send them to school and there's no public schools in the country that we're serving in. And so we need help with sending them to school. I guarantee you that God's put dreams into the hearts of pastors, missionaries, and ministry leaders that have not been expressed. That They're not in the budget. They're not announcing it in their newsletter. It's something that God wants to do that he's already spoken to them about, but they're a little hesitant, maybe a little fearful that there's just not going to be enough support, not going to be enough resources, not going to be enough people who care to help rally around that dream and make it a reality. Not for just you know a bump in their lifestyle, but for them to be able to do what God's called them to do with joy and with the support and strength that they need. Here's the question. What's one thing that I could do for you that would set you up for success? The challenge is I want you to ask that to someone in the next seven days, wait for their reply. When they reply, ask yourself or your spouse, what could we do to contribute to that? Maybe you could do the whole amount. I know for some business leaders to write a $10,000 check is easy. They don't even feel it. And $10,000 could change the game for a ministry leader. Someone might need something simpler than that. Maybe they just need some marriage counseling or a weekend away. You know what? I'll pay for the hotel. I'll pay for the flights or the travel. I'll pay for your meals. I'll pay for your babysitting. And in the end, it's going to cost you less than a grand. And you're going to refresh or bless a pastor, missionary, or ministry leader. For less than a grand, you could change the game for their marriage or their parenting. There's so much that's possible if we will listen and ask the question, not wait for them to bring that special need or that private dream to you. You go be proactive. Ask them the question. And then ask God, what would you want me to do with it? Maybe you can't afford to meet the need yourself, but you can rally three or four others in your small group or in your church or in your family. Go, Let's get this done and have fun blessing someone. Let's just do it. Come on. And then collectively, you get the shared experience of contributing to someone's life and ministry. Ask the question. Ask God what he wants you to do about it. And then you're going to be part of a cool story. Yeah, I love that suggestion. And What a perfect way for somebody to get started or for somebody who's well into many steps of faith to see what God has in store next. John, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today and for everything that you've shared and for all the work you're doing with Gospel Patrons. We're very blessed to have you with us today. Thanks, guys. This has been fun. And I appreciate your hearts for the Great Commission, for generosity, for professional people to use all that God's placed in their hands to build his kingdom and glory. I can tell you when we get to heaven, we will not regret any dollar we've given 
to trade in our treasure on earth for treasure in heaven. We will not regret any step of faith we've taken for the glory of God and to bless and love and serve other people. We will be thrilled and would have wished we had taken more. So let's keep climbing higher and stepping up to be the people of God in this hour and do all that God's put in our hearts for him. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who's living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we'd love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't have to have all the answers. Just a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. And finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 52. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.